0: If you would again turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 34. It might be helpful, especially for this Psalm, to keep your Bibles open as we go through it. We'll be referencing it continuously and going back through it. Before we read God's Word, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we know that what we embark upon here is a gift that we are undeserving of. To open your Word, to explore the depths, of the truth that you have delivered to us, to explore what is, in reality, your depths, as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We ask that we would do this with a proper mindset, that we would approach you with reverence and awe. We ask that what would be said tonight would be in accordance with your word, and that it would touch our hearts, that it would change our lives, and that we would live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 34, I'm going to read the beginning preface of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned condemned who takes refuge in him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I'm sure we're all familiar with, or most of us may be familiar with, the the well-known Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of main character George Bailey and what he went through throughout his life in seeking to run his own business, in seeking to gain an education. And in all these ways, it, what he wanted didn't happen. He wasn't able to get the education he wanted. He wasn't able to have the career he wanted, the house he wanted. And eventually, through some various misfortunes that happened, He finds himself questioning whether his life was worth it at all, whether he should have even been born. And thus, the angel Clarence comes down to him and shows him that George Bailey had a wonderful life. And at the end of the movie, Clarence writes in a book these words, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. And if you know the movie, Thanks for the Wings, Love, Clarence. As much as I love this movie, it it pains me then to say that this last sentiment doesn't really get it fully right. It's raising the question in many ways, what's a wonderful life? What's a worthy life? And though it may get closer to the answer than what in the movie, what Potter was, the sentiment of no man is a failure who has friends, is that really a worthy life? Now, why do I talk about this? Why do I bring it up? Because in many ways, Psalm 34 is an answer to what is a wonderful life? What is a worthy life? What makes a life worth living? In fact, our psalm asks that question in verse 12. It's better translated in the ESV as, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In essence, it's asking, what man loves life? Who desires a wonderful life? And then the psalm answers what indeed a wonderful life is. It shows us that true joy is built on the fear of the Lord and on his abundant deliverance. And as we go through it, I'm going to continue to try to say this theme. This is what the psalm is really getting at. A wonderful life comes through praise, deliverance, and fear. A wonderful life comes through praise, deliverance, and fear. This sound before we get into it all, a, little, a couple introductory words, is an acrostic. It's a Hebrew poetic device of beginning each verse with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's very common. We come across it frequently. But sometimes acrostics then don't follow a simple pattern. You don't always arrange material. It kind of weaves in and out. It follows themes in a very beautiful way. And that's what's going on here. Weaving the themes together of praise for God and what he's done, seeing the deliverance of God in the abundant ways God delivers us, and then calling us in response to that to then fear him. And this psalm explains what fear is. I also read that beginning part, that context, in the the little preface statement. Psalm 34, before it begins in verse 1, has, "Of, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away, and he left. Now, this is referencing the events of 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, when David was fleeing from Saul and came into the Philistine land to the king, as in, in the story called Achish, and Abimelech, as our psalm says, is most likely a title, something like a, like Pharaoh, like Abimelech, a king. So that's, that could be a possible explanation for the difference in names between Achish and Abimelech. And don't worry, we're getting somewhere, so just track with me. So this is seemingly the context. David praises God and gives this psalm after this event with Achish when he was in this Philistine realm and the king, who was a Philistine, would have killed him. Why? Because David had killed many Philistines to this point. And so David, fearing for his life, Pretends to act insane. He spits out of his mouth. He pretends to to, to spittle drooling from his mouth. And the king then says, this can't be the mighty David who's killed all the kings. Get him out of here. And so it seems to work. Now this might raise the question, was David right in what he did? Was David right to act, act this way? The psalm doesn't answer it. And what's important here and why I'm getting to this is because David has seen an individual occurrence in his life and has decided to praise God for it. We don't know for sure whether it was right for him to act that way, and that's not the point. The point is is that David sees God's deliverance here, and so he praises him. David praises the Lord, and the first three verses are just an extolling of God. David says, "...I will extol the Lord at all times." His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's easy when we go through Psalms to skip the praise section. After all, we're looking for some relevant material for ourselves often, and we forget that, well, the praise section is indeed relevant for us and very practical for us. What is a worthy life? It's a life lived in praise to God. The psalm is asking that question. What is a worthy life? And David begins with praise. And we shouldn't understand praise as merely just talking about what God has done. That word for praise should better be translated, bless the Lord. And the idea here is of returning the blessings that God is giving us, returning it to him. Where in what we're doing in praising God, we're actually giving to God something. We're giving him worship. We're giving him praise. We're not just discussing what he has done. We're praising him. We're blessing him. is, Is that not the purpose of man himself, to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Well, that's what David is doing, to bless the Lord. And people of God we don't consider enough this responsibility. We're called to praise God. That we're called to live a life of praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving to Him. We can be really good at teaching children, at teaching ourselves to make sure you say thank you when someone gives you something. Sad reality is, often, When we see something that the Lord has done in our lives, when we see some sort of deliverance, our response may be a half-coherent prayer of praise. Sometimes we do praise God. But if we're honest with ourselves, often we slip here. Often we're not even clued in enough to what God is doing to see that our lives are full of events to praise Him. Just like David here. You see, you might think with the context of this psalm that David should have praised himself. He was in the Philistine land and he decided to act insane and the king let him go, wasn't David orchestrating all of this? Wasn't this David's saving of himself? And he says, no. He knows exactly that it was the Lord who did this. It was the Lord who delivered him. And in our own lives, we need to do the same. We need to see even those things that we think we were authoring and orchestrating weren't actually so. That it's God working in us. It's God who should be praised, even for what we seem to be doing. So we we must ask ourselves, how are we doing in praise of God? A worthy life is lived in praise to him. And we must seek that. We must seek that daily. There is no greater blessing in life than to be a blessing to God. That's the highest form of life. And so David begins with praise. But then we might ask the question, why? Why does David praise God? The following verses, starting in verse 4 and going through the end of the psalm, show us why we praise God. What do we praise him for? And in Psalm 34, it's for his abundant deliverance. And it is abundant. It just covers a vast array of things. Verse 4 said that God delivers from all fear. Verse 5 says that God delivers from shame. Verse 6 says that God delivers from all troubles. Verse 10 says that God delivers from lack or want of good. Verse 18 says that God delivers the crushed spirits and broken hearts of his people. And then verse 20 even says that God delivers his people from broken bones. And what that's getting at is that God preserves his people physically, that God keeps his people unharmed. Look at the vast array in which God delivers his people. We can sometimes think of the salvation and deliverance of God and and pigeonhole it to salvation. God delivers us by delivering us from our sins, and that's true, but he delivers us in many different ways. It could be from delivering you from a king who who wants your head. It could be from anxieties that you have, the fears that you undergo, the sickness that you have. It covers everything. The abundant deliverance of God is over every issue. God delivers us. But now we come to that question I'm sure you're all asking. How can that be? We all can look at each of these verses and think of our lives or another's life and say, but God's not delivering that person. That person still has cancer. That person was sexually abused. That person was physically abused. They're Christians. Where was God in them? And this gets us at dealing with trusting and knowing that God does deliver us from everything, even when we see the pain and problems in our lives. To answer this question, we actually have to look deeper into this psalm. The psalm says in verse 17, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. And notice this, He delivers them from what? From all their troubles. Verse 19 says that a righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. This psalm is not making the claim that the people of God will not undergo trouble. In fact, it's saying that they will. The righteous may, un- may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them. So that's the first point we have to see. We will have difficulties. We will have troubles. But then, what is God's deliverance? See, the problem with the way of thinking that we have is we can often confuse God's deliverance with his removal of the tribe. We can think and, and place God in this box, in this structure, that the only true deliverance whereafter the only true delivery of fears or anxieties, is when we don't have the battle, when we don't have to face them. That's not actually fully correct. You see, the deliverance of God comes in many ways. Sometimes it's like what David experienced. Seemingly instant freedom and instant deliverance, where the king lets him go, God delivers me. It's it's like clean, it's easy to see, God delivered. There are other characters in God's word where that doesn't happen. Where you see Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Well, deliverance for Paul comes in two ways. Deliverance from Paul's thorn in the flesh, deliverance from those type of trials that linger with us that we might never fully overcome on this earth? Well, one is that Paul knew what God was doing. Paul knew how he was working through it, and thus he accepted the trial. He accepted what he was given because he knew it was for furthering of God's kingdom. And in that, he received peace. In that, he received deliverance, though he didn't receive the removal of the thorn in the flesh. And yet, even with that, ultimately in heaven, that would be removed. You see, the deliverance of God comes in a very nuanced way and sometimes in a hard to see way. So, but it always comes. We will always experience the deliverance of God. This is illustrated in the book of Job. This is illustrated with everyone we see. And particularly, this is illustrated in Christ. You know, this psalm actually makes a reference to Christ in verse 20. Verse 20 says He protects all his bones not one of them will be broken. Now this has these these a, a twofold fulfillment. For David and for us this is talking about God's physical care of us that he will deliver us unharmed that he will protect us in our bodies. But this has a literal fulfillment in the life of Jesus himself. When he was crucified and John 19:36 makes clear none of his bones were broken. This sets up Jesus as the image, the definition of the one who fears God, of the righteous one. David is making in this psalm a claim that for those who fear God, they will be delivered from all fears and all trouble. So then, if we think we can have a dilemma in our lives, then look at Jesus and isn't that a dilemma? How could the one who was perfect, who exemplified the fear of the Lord better than anyone else could, how did he not experience the deliverance of God, or did he? And the answer is, of course, he did. Through Jesus' life, he experienced deliverance in many ways. Sometimes it was when angels would come and feed him after being tempted by the devil for 40 days. Sometimes it was when the people thought he was such a great teacher that the Pharisees were afraid to touch him. In all these ways, God's delivering him. But then we go to the one great example on the cross. When Jesus is hanging there and being crucified, wouldn't that be the best example of God's failure to deliver his saints? We know that that's actually the prime example of God's deliverance. Not only for ourselves, but even for Jesus. You see, it was through his crucifixion, it was through the wrath that he bore, through going through hell itself on this earth, that he received the name that is above every name. It was through going through the many trials that the righteous might go through that he was resurrected to new life as the firstborn of all creation. Why do I say all this? Because do you see how abundant the deliverance of God is? It extends to everything. It extends to our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. The reason that we don't need to be afraid or that we will be delivered from all our fears and from all our troubles is because we are in Christ, the one who was delivered, and thus we experience deliverance as well. So we see that a wonderful life comes through praise of God and through the deliverance of God, but a wonderful life also comes through the fear of God. We see this beginning in verses 7 through 10, and then going on through the rest of the psalm. It says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He delivers them. The use of the angel of the Lord here could be referring to an angel that God would send, but... Other uses in the Old Testament would lend us to believe that this is actually the presence of God that encamps around us. That it is the presence of God that encamps around and delivers us and protects who? Those who fear the Lord. Verse 10 explains that the lions may grow weak and hungry but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions in the ancient world were the epitome of self-sufficiency. A young lion was the top predator it was able to hunt it had no it had nothing to fear and even they lack even they want tying into the fact that the enemies of god themselves the very powerful in the world will lack and grow hungry but the people of god don't for they find their nourishment in him you really see how important the fear of the lord is when you read verse 11 Verse 11 in this psalm is a major shift. The first 10 verses largely deal with the praise of God. Verse 11 and following largely deals with the fear of the Lord and the call to act in obedience to him. Verse 11, David says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 12 explains that if you truly desire to have a good life, the only way through it is to fear the Lord. But what is this fear of the Lord? Notice what happens, what he says right after it. Come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever loves life and desires to see many good days, what? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Fear of the Lord is obedience to his law, the fear of the Lord is hating evil. Proverbs 8 makes this clear. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord, and it defines it, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. You know, I don't think we would probably connect that. To answer what is the fear of the Lord, would we put it as hating evil? Would we put it as obedience to Him? The reason this makes sense is that for those who truly fear the Lord, they do hate evil. They have been transformed. You can't pretend to fear the Lord and then continue in unrepentant sin. You can't pretend to love the Lord and then also cling to and love sin. You must hate it. And we know that in our lives, even when we struggle against it, even when we fail, we hate the sin that we're failing against. That we seek to fear the Lord and obey him and him alone. That is the fear of the Lord. It encompasses more than that, but that's what this Psalm points to. Do you want a wonderful life? Do you want a worthy life? Obey God. Obey His word many of us are doing that? You know, in the current Christian landscape in the United States, we don't place a premium on holy living. We don't place a premium on revering God's law. We've kind of stepped away from God's law in a little bit of fear. We can misunderstand God's law. That's that's led to a lot of it. But a Christian is one who knows God's law and obeys it. Not to be saved, but because we already are. And so we fear the Lord. We know his power. We know his might. We know his holiness. And so we hate what is opposite God and that sin. It makes sense in this psalm why we would, why we would go this way. A wonderful life comes through praising God. Praising him for what? His abundant deliverance. Abundant deliverance of what? All of our troubles, all of our fears. And because of all of this deliverance, we then hate sin. We then flee from it. We become the righteous of God. Verse 15 expresses this so beautifully. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the righteous could be understood as those who fear God. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Our God sits in heaven and watches over every one of us with a careful eye. He's attentive to our cry and hears everything we say. That's the hope of a Christian. That's the joy that we have. That's a wonderful life. But then notice where this psalm goes. verse 15 explains those who truly follow God, what they receive, verse 16 shows the opposite. It says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The evil will be erased. Their memory cut off. To fear the Lord means there will be no lasting point of you. You will be erased. You will experience judgment for eternity. And they then might wish like George Bailey that they never had lived. That's the depth of what the psalm is saying. That's what we've been saved from. To have our memory blotted out and erased from the earth. And as verse 21 so powerfully shows, it's their own evil that slays them. It's their own wickedness. People of God, our enemies... The kingdom of Satan, those who do not fear the Lord, those who attack attack the church, God will judge them, and in so doing delivers us. The judgment of God is deliverance to his people. It's astonishing. This is the God we serve. And so we walk away from here today with a greater appreciation and understanding for how completely God delivers his children for how exalted and worthy of praise he is. John Calvin summarizes this psalm the following way, David gives thanks to God for a signal deliverance and takes occasion from it to celebrate his perpetual grace toward all the saints and to exhort them both to trust in him and to the study of godliness, affirming that the only way to pass through life happily is to walk holily and harmlessly in the world in the service and fear of God. We walk away from Psalm 34 in awe of what God has done. And then with, underneath that, a call to trust. To trust in his deliverance. To trust that he will free us from all of our fears. To cling to that. And then by so doing, walk in holiness. You see, Clarence got it wrong. It's not that no man is a failure who has friends. It's no man is a failure who fears God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have delivered us. And so we praise you for your deliverance. We praise you for how you have protected us and how you will protect us in each of our lives. We ask that we will be content with the deliverance you give, that we would not place you in a box and expect the deliverance we want, but seek instead what you offer. We ask that we would trust in you. We ask that this psalm would not only prove to be a cause of praise, but a cause for hope in our lives.